1 Peter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It's really neat to see that uh, no doubt Peter was inspired by the writings of Isaiah. Uh, reading these two passages so close together, no doubt you see the echoes, you see the themes um, that Peter saw as a comfort to his soul and that he was writing to these scattered, suffering Christians as a comfort to them. But let's, let's bow in prayer and we'll dig into this passage. And I, and I trust, my prayer is that it will be a blessing to each of us as well as, as a challenge. Our Father, we're, we're thankful for this opportunity to meet together. We're thankful for your word, for the life-giving um, word that we have, for the, the truths in it. We pray that we would approach this, um, uh, your, your word in this passage in particular, uh, with open hearts. By that I mean that we would not have barriers up to you, that we would not fence off parts of our lives our psyche, our personality, our, our, our likes and dislikes, that we would not bar that from the penetrating light of your word. If you have something in our lives that we need to change, if there's something that we um, uh, that is, is not holy and righteous that we are pursuing, please lovingly bring that to our attention today, Father. I know the needs in my heart. I don't pretend to know the needs in each person's heart here. But I pray that as we just lay out your word, as we, we try to faithfully say whatever the scripture is saying, that you'll use that way beyond um, my ability to speak, my ability to study. The, uh, on, on a day like today uh, where, where things um, are a little bit out of the ordinary in my um, desired orderly world in my head, I pray that you would show yourself glorious and teach me a lesson that uh, this isn't about you, Tim. This is about my word. I pray that you would speak to us. And um, above all, I pray that you'd be glorified in what I say and what we sing and what we are thinking and how we understand and apply your word today. Thank you, Father, for the love you have shown to us in the sacrifice of your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So this passage in, uh, in the last few weeks in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, no doubt they've been challenging, have they not? I mean, two weeks ago, Joseph opened this, um, this part of our series in 1 Peter talking about submission, submission to the authorities, submission to the emperor. Um, I did not like the illustration that he used, talking about obeying the speed limit. Uh, this is, but in, in that, there is truth that we should submit to the authorities, um, Peter, boy, he just doesn't leave any room for a loophole, does he? Be subject to every human institution. 
even like Hillsborough Police, the, 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 the road to Chad's house is a punitive speed limit. 25 miles an hour, really? I can run faster briefly. But the, there, that goes beyond that. And we had some good discussions in our community group. Good, depending on where you are. Like, um, there are th- we, we are to submit to every human institution unless those authorities, unless the emperor, unless the president is telling us to disobey God. Uh, part of the interesting discussions was if, if our government here, if our country decided to ban, say, firearms. What a fool I am to go here. But uh, say firearms. You know, is that a constitutional right? Yes, it is. Is it a God-given right? Not in this version of the Bible. But, um, you know, that, that was a, a good real-world discussion of do we submit um, to the authorities. I'll let you talk about that in your community groups. But... Um, so it, it's tough. It, it's really tough. And then last week, Chad brought it to uh, slaves submitting to your masters, which applies to each of us um, that that have worked, that, that do work. And again, Peter closes the hoped-for loophole of submit to your good masters. No, submit to your unjust masters. When they treat you with evil, when they mistreat you, you are still to submit. Today's message is a little bit different. It's kind of like in the middle of this very hard truth. And that's what I call it, truth, that um, hard, difficult truth. And I, I trust, that, you know, the Bible says the truth will set you free. And we know that to be true on a number of fronts. We know that the truth will set us free from our enslavement from sin, perhaps from bonds of bitterness that we might have, perhaps the millstone of unforgiveness that still hangs on us. Hopefully those words will make some sense in a few moments. But last week we learned about our submission to masters and we started to learn about suffering. And Peter talks about when you suffer, he's not talking about suffering for your own sin. If you suffer because you treat someone badly, there's no credit to you, it says in the previous verses. But rather, we will suffer when we do good. We will suffer when we do right. And that phrase in um, verse 19, if you look back a few Verses. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, when mindful of God, God's understanding, God's scope, God's economy is necessary for us to endure sorrow while suffering, while still glorifying God. Our submission, Chad said, is first of all to God. And from that emanates the ability that we have to submit to earthly authorities in our lives. That leads up to verse 21. And this opening phrase in verse 21 doesn't resonate well with 2014. For to this you have been called. If you are a believer, if you are a follower of Christ, you are called to suffer. This is kind of the exact opposite of your best life now. This is saying... Compared to the life that you will have, this is the worst it's going to be. But look at it in the eternal scope. Suffering is our calling. We are called to suffer for doing right. This is not suffering in terms of just the human condition. This is not suffering of just getting sick. This is not suffering of death or um, getting old. That's not the suffering that this passage is talking about. 
And of course, we, we just reiterated, this is not suffering that we might experience for doing wrong. This is not the consequences of our sin, um, suffering by being foolish. But this is suffering for doing right, for doing what God wants us to do. And suffering is not merely the byproduct. It's not a detour that we're going to have to take this exit at some point and endure suffering uh, as a byproduct of living holy lives. Suffering is the pathway to living holy lives. And with that calling, you know, let me set that table before us, and then let's figure out how are we, resp- how are we to respond to this inevitable God-ordained suffering that he has called us to. So, thankfully, it, this passage takes us to Christ. And there's three things about Jesus that I want to point out to us. First of all, Christ is our suffering example. Christ is our suffering example. In the latter half of verse 21, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The word, the Greek word for example here is a pattern, an example, a stencil. How many people remember learning to write? Kindergarten, first grade, what what year do we learn to do that? Somebody? Uh, do you guys remember the pencils that were like this big? You lay it on your shoulder and you you write with it. And the paper, the paper that has like big chunks of wood still in it, and you you write. Am I that? Am I the only one? Did, did anybody eat glue? Anybody? <laughs> All right. So, um, don't do that, kids. Don't do that. But how did we learn to write? We learned to write with something like this, right? I, I don't know. This might be old, old technology. I also didn't wasn't put in the car seat. I bounced around. I uh, walked around the car. So this is how I learned to write, where we traced a stencil, where I learned to write. Um, you know, my name's Tim, so that capital T. I learned to write it in such a way that I've never written it that way before. It's kind of that weird sort of thing. I don't know who decides. I do know that the script lowercase t is this way. But you see how it's, students are taught to trace it. That's the word here, for example. It's just not an ideal that you see, but it's something that you go over. It's a pattern. Um, so that word in the Greek, where Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, I think we can take that to say what's to come, what's about to be described, Christ as an example. That's not an unrealistic ideal. You know, I thought about... Um, you know, the NFL combine, you see how athletes jump up and they, have, they measure their vertical leap and you see like, oh, this guy's got a 36-inch vertical leap. Um, that to me is an unrealistic ideal. I think physically it is impossible for me to ever regain that glory of my vertical leap. Um, that, but here, what Christ has called us to do, this is a realistic Ideal. In fact, this is what we are required to do. We are to trace this. We are to follow this pattern. We are to emulate this. We are to master this. The other word that Peter uses is uh, footsteps. Now, I was thinking about this as well. This is not like, now, now it doesn't snow here enough, but I grew up in New Jersey before I went to Louisiana. But I grew up in New Jersey, and you, if you see footprints like this in the snow, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to also put your foot in so you don't mess up the snow, right, OCD people? Isn't that what you do? You don't want to mess it up. You just want to walk in them. Now, if you're walking behind your dad, say Dan Isaacson's your dad, and he's walking in the snow like this, and then when, um, when Bryce was real little, 
I can imagine, or Gabe now, he would be hopping around trying to stay in the, the steps, but maybe failing. But th- again, that's not what Peter's saying. Peter's like, these are things you're supposed to trace. You're supposed to follow in these footsteps. So that's the bar that's being set. That's the high bar that's being set, that Christ is our suffering example. Christ's behavior was the pattern for our own response. So let's look deeper at what Christ's example was. In verse 22, Christ committed no sin. That just clarifies for us that Christ suffered for doing right. Christ suffered for doing good. His behavior was right. He did nothing to deserve the suffering. Uh, John MacArthur says, No man suffered more unjustly than any creature will ever be treated than Christ, because Christ was the only perfect person. So the level of unjust suffering reached a magnitude, reached a peak with the suffering that Christ received. All that came against him was utterly undeserved. Christ committed no sin as our suffering example. Verse 22, Christ did not lie. The passage says he did not say anything deceitful. Christ did not manipulate the truth in order to gain an audience or supporters. Um, I'm about to get a little more personal with uh, some of these illustrations because they come to mind because they're the tendencies that I might have. When I'm wronged, when I'm wronged and, and someone has abused me or someone has wronged me and caused me to suffer, even if in the act of doing right, when I tell that to the elders, when I tell that to my wife, sometimes I'm tempted to exaggerate the truth. You know how when you relay a story, then we use words like, well, he basically told me that I'm an idiot. Those words never came out of his mouth, but when I tell the story, I want to get people on my side. I want to bend the truth a little bit. He basically told me blank, or he practically kicked me out of his house. Maybe he just asked me to leave, but when I retell it, it's going to sound like he picked me up, threw me out the window, came out there and beat me with the two-by-four. That's what I'm going to do to try to get people on my side, but that is wrong. Jesus did not say anything deceitful in his suffering. He did not try to respond by putting his opponents in a bad light. And Jesus, of course, at the beginning of the suffering, he didn't do anything to bring that suffering on himself by lying or deceiving. And so this, that's the second thing that Jesus did not do as a suffering example. Thirdly, in verse 23, the, the word in, in the passage is reviled. That's verbal abuse. That's harsh language. Jesus did not reply with abusive language when he was verbally abused. Let's think back just in the Passion Week, the, the path that Jesus took to the cross. Jesus was slandered before the Sanhedrin. Jesus was ridiculed by the Romans. Jesus was cursed by the thief on the cross. And as Isaiah says, he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53, 7. He didn't set the record straight. He didn't say, I may be about to die, but I'm going to at least tell you what I think of you. He didn't say, don't you know who you're dealing with? He didn't write a blog about it. One of, this is, I believe, one of the hardest things for us to do, to follow this part of Jesus' example, yet we're called to do it. Isn't there a part of us that when we're wronged, we at least 
want to set the record straight. We want to let that person know they hurt us. We want to... If We're not going to cross the line by abusing them verbally, but we're going to say some strong things. I mean, we have all these code words. You know, setting the record straight is a good thing, right? Um, in our in our earthly minds, uh, setting the record straight, you're not you're not crossing the line, but you're just letting people know what's what. Um, spiritually, we say you know we're going to speak truth into their life harshly, but you know all these words they Jesus did not. Jesus, as our example, did not reply with abuse when verbally threatened. He opened not his mouth. Verse 23 leads us to the fourth thing that Jesus did not do. He did not retaliate with threatening. There were no personal attacks on his persecutors. He did not say, you're going to get what's coming to you. 1 Peter 3, 9 in the next chapter says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Jesus did not commit sin. Jesus did not lie. Jesus did not reply with abuse when he was verbally abused. Jesus did not retaliate with threatening. Instead, Jesus' response was not passive resignation to the suffering. But his response was patient confidence. Not passive resignation, but patient confidence. So I just named four things that Jesus did not do. What did Jesus do? His patient confidence was informed by the knowledge of the latter half of this verse, verse 23b. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is better translated without the himself. This is better translated as he continued entrusting to him who judges justly. I, I note that because it's not just about um, trusting himself, trusting his body to God. We might say, God, I know that whatever happens, you'll prevent me from harm. But this is, I entrust the whole situation to you. I entrust all the attitudes. I entrust all that people are thinking about me. I entrust the fact that that person that hurt me is going to talk to someone else. And that someone else is not going to come to get the real story from me, but that someone else is going to believe evil of me. I'm trusting that part of it to you too, God. He trusted the entire situation to God, to Him who judges justly. Now, why does God deserve that sort of trust? Let's look at that God who judges justly. And... One thing I never want you all to do is like when we're preaching, when we say stuff, don't just nod your head if it's like, um, if we say God's the righteous judge. If you have a hard time believing that right now, that God's the righteous judge, take that to him. Um, don't let our phraseology, our, our, our religious words, our jargon just become little bumper stickers. Sometimes these, these sayings, these, these things like God is the righteous judge. God is the person who judges justly. Sometimes I know it can be hard to remember that. Sometimes I know it can be hard to apply that, much less to trust him with the whole situation. We run around, we, we speak, we anguish. That's not a verb. We, um, we struggle with letting go. 
letting God have control of it. But that's what Jesus did. He trusted him who judges justly. Is God the righteous judge? Yes, he is. Does God properly discern the intents of man's heart? Even better than me or you? He does. Does God properly address heart attitude? Does God know the heart of man? Yes, he does. Does God tolerate? Does God overlook or flippantly pardon sin? No, he does not. Is God all-knowing? Yes, he is. Has God ever turned his head? Can he be fooled? Can someone get one past him? No, they cannot. Will God judge? And will he do so in a just, holy, perfect manner? Yes, he will. Now, do we live in the light of the truth of those questions and those answers? God is the righteous judge. We know He is worthy of our trust. We know that He judges. Last week, Chad made a very strong comment that stuck with me that our submission, one of the things at stake in our submission is that God's sovereignty is at stake. And I want to, I want to expand on that. It's not that God's sovereignty, if we don't believe in it, it's not going to exist. God is sovereign in any regard. One of my favorite classic Christmas movie is Elf. I think it came out maybe 10 years ago. But um, do you guys remember what powered the, uh, the sleigh and the reindeer? It was Christmas spirit, right? Um, uh, Buddy the Elf says the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. Anybody else seen this movie? Okay, <laughs> I hate for me just to be that immature. But God's sovereignty is not like that. I mean, in, in that movie, the more people sang and the more they believed in Christmas, the more powerful the, the, the reindeer and the sleigh and Santa got. God's sovereignty is not like that. When I say God's sovereignty is at stake, it's not whether we believe in it or not. But it is super impactful on how we live. We should not live a lie. We should not live and say God is sovereign. Many of us here have been impacted tremendously by the understanding that God's sovereignty and salvation has transformed how we view our salvation, how much we treasure it, how we evangelize. With our words, we can say things like Reformed and Calvinism. But perhaps with our actions, especially when we suffer, we say, I am God. I control this situation. God, you're not sovereign over this. I don't trust you to handle this. I don't trust you to set things straight. If we trust God for our eternal salvation, how much more can we trust him, the righteous, holy God, to judge impartially? We know God cannot overlook sin. We know God cannot tolerate and endorse. He will not reward sin. He's not going to let it pass. He's an eternal God. So, but he means it when he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. You know, if we have a short view, like, but God, I want vengeance in the next five minutes. That would make me feel really good. God's like, I got it. No, no, I, I need this taken care of before I die. I need this before that person moves away. I need this before 
they go on and spread more poison about me. And God's like, I got it. He'll take care of it. He'll judge it. And he's not calling us to say, ha ha, that person's going to get judged. I can't wait to see that happening. No, that's not the right attitude in our suffering either. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus did not look at the thief on the cross and like, you're going to curse me now? He did not look at the Romans and say, I mean, those Roman soldiers, we know what they said in Scripture. But if you just think about the other stuff, Jesus said he was king of the Jews, and these Romans thought they were king of the world. And they're striking him. You know, they're saying, like, what kind of king are you? They mocked him as they'll tell us, uh, you know, all things. You know, he's blindfolded. Tell us who hit you. We would not dare to mock God like that. But do we in our own ownership of our suffering, in our response to suffering that we do, do we betray our words? This is difficult. But why would we want to snatch that vengeance back into our own inept, our own partial knowledge, our own weak, incomplete, imperfect hands, our easily deceived, our easily manipulated understanding? God knows the heart of the person. We sometimes do so so that we might feel vindicated in some sort of temporary, unsatisfactory, unfulfilling way. When we wreak our own vengeance, it feels good for a moment. But it's not what God has called us to do. And we don't feel good about it. We don't feel like we pleased God. And He is not pleased when we take back what is His. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. In the suffering, we are to suffer for doing right. We will suffer for doing nothing wrong. Saying the same thing another way. We are to respond by not sinning. We are to respond by not lying. We are to respond not with verbal abuse or threatening but we are to respond by trusting God, the righteous judge, because Jesus is our pattern. He is our stencil. He is our example for suffering. But thankfully, we are not merely called to follow his example based on our own initiative. This is not a you know, kick you in the seat of the pants, stop taking vengeance on your own, you know, just do it, just do right on your own willpower. It's not even an intellectual understanding that this is the best way to respond. Because we have an example, and it goes further, and Jesus is our sacrificial, substitutionary Savior. The, sa- the salvation that he brings is for the express purpose of helping us to die to sin and to live righteously. In Isaiah 53, um, the, uh, the prophet Isaiah presents Christ as the suffering servant. But within that beautiful, moving poem, in Isaiah 53, is the timeless, awesome truth that Christ is also our sacrificial Savior. He bore our sins in His body on the tree. He bore our sins. That's kind of Christian language. What does that mean, to bear sins, to bear iniquity? Recently, we baptized three young ladies, and um, I believe Emily gave the testimony that when she came to Christ, and when she came to came to God in, in understanding her need of a Savior and trusting only in Christ. She said it felt physically like a burden had been lifted from her back. She was not the first person to write about that or to say that. John Bunyan wrote about it in Pilgrim's Progress. There is a physical bearing, but what does it mean to bear the iniquity? You know, We read verses all through the Old Testament, Leviticus, Ezekiel, Numbers, talking about like um, 
the sons will not bear the iniquity of the father, or the father will not bear the iniquities of the sons, or the, the priest will bear the iniquity for the people. What does it mean? I would submit for your consideration that bearing sin means bearing the punishment for sin. It's not like holding on to the sin um, in, a, in a backpack. It's bearing the punishment for our sin. He himself bore our sins. He himself took our punishment in his body on the tree. Second Corinthians 5.21, 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus bore our sins, and Jesus took our penalty. This is our hope, and this is our only hope for responding properly to suffering. The key doctrine of the church centers around this core fundamental as you delve into the cross and the gospel. This doctrine of substitution just transforms everything. All the other doctrines orbit surround this one. um, Words like redemption. Redemption is redeeming something. Um, Redemption in itself is substitutionary in that Christ paid the price that we could not pay. Christ paid the price in our place and we go free. Propitiation is a word we also say around the gospel. Propitiation is wrath-absorbing. The, the sacrifice, wrath-absorbing sacrifice. Propitiation is the removal of divine wrath for sin. And at, at the cross, that wrath was placed on Christ in our place. Our sin, our sin, my sin, drew the penalty. Jesus bore the penalty. We also see substitution in the word justification. Justification is uh, more of a legal term where our salvation is interpreted from a judicial perspective and that Christ takes our legal liability. He takes it in our place. The bottom line of the gospel is that Christ took our place on the cross. If Christ had not substituted for us, we would still bear the mark of a condemned sinner. We would still hold the sin and the guilt for those sins. If Christ did not bear my penalty, I would have to bear my penalty. The words that open verse 24, he himself emphatically states that this penalty was not forced on him. It's not presumptuous to say that Jesus took the weight of our sins and took the penalty for our sins because he took it voluntarily. He took it out of love for us. He took it to bring glory to his Father. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. Christ paid the sacrifice for sin on the cross. And even in the form of this death was more substitution. Even the form of Jesus' death was an insulting, unjust presumption and suffering. He who did no wrong was executed in the lowest form of death possible, that of a criminal. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, says Galatians 3, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Substitution saturates the doctrine of the gospel. Substitution, without substitution, we have no hope. 
But there is also a purpose to his death. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Die to sin. That sounds like another Christian catchphrase, doesn't it? But we shouldn't just throw that around. What does that really mean? Die to sin. Earlier, we saw that Christ bore our sins. Christ bore the penalty in the last phrase. This gives hope for change. We can leave the past with God. This gives hope for our church. The sins that Christ bore in His body, the penalties that He took, He took my sins. He took Mike's sins. He took Sarah's sins. That's past. We leave the past with God. We should not hold that against each other. The song we sing frequently, and no doubt the favorite verse of this song, it is well. I forget if it's the third or the fourth verse. My sin. And then the the writer kind of takes a little reverie. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. I do not carry the guilt of my sin into the future. I have hope for change. Before that became a political slogan, we have hope for change in the cross. The word die here, that we might die to sin, it's only used here in the Bible. And the Greek word means a separation. It's apart from, that we might be apart from sin, that we might depart from sin. It connotes a turning away. And isn't that appropriate? Because repentance is necessary for salvation. Turning away from sin. And this is like saying Jesus bore the penalty in his body on the tree that we might be separated from sin and that we might live to righteousness. Living to righteousness. God's purpose in this substitutionary death of Christ was to, number one, give us a departure from sin and, number two, give us a life free from slavery to sin. The good news of the gospel shows us that we can and that we are called to and that we are empowered to live lives of righteousness. This is the design and purpose and intent of the cross. And this is the purpose of our suffering, that we might live to righteousness. There's a transformation that is, takes place in this verse. God calls on us to change. God enables us to change. God molds and shapes us. I want to provide a loving caution. I feel like in um, in our in our postmodern society, in in our 21st century, there's a real emphasis on self-analysis, categorization. Personality testing. I'm very sensitive to this because, for those of you who don't know me, maybe maybe it's even more um, apparent than I, I realize. But those of you who know me know that um, I'm a I'm an engineer. I'm Type A. Um, I I folk, I'm a project manager. I'm like the perfect storm of fun to be around. Uh, I can live my life and say, hey, you know, hi. Um, I just met Jason. Hi, I'm type A. 
that, that means I'm going to speak pretty brusquely to you. I'm not going to, I'm an engineer. I don't empathize with anybody. Um, I'm a project manager. I'm going to be really focused on details. Um, that's how I am. No, I think God transforms you. Let's look at the, I mean, Peter writing this was a rough, crude fisherman who became a leader of the church, eloquent, long-suffering, teaching people about suffering. He, he himself was teachable. He trusted God for the outcome rather than early in his life. He was a man of action who took things into his own hands. Do you think in the garden when he cut off the servant's ear that he was thinking, oh, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You know, that's the God I serve. He was like, no, vengeance is is mine. You know, I'm Peter. Vengeance is mine right now. The Apostle Paul, transformed by the gospel. He was an angry, zealous, religious enforcer who became a preacher, a mentor, a spiritual father. I encourage all of us, wherever we might be, not to take on the sovereignty of God and say, you're sovereign in all things, but this is how I am. This is how I've always been. I know that God gives each of us different gifts. I decry the use of manipulation to force people into evangelizing, and this is the way you evangelize. If you are not speaking publicly in Pioneer Square, your evangelism is weak. That's, that's, not, that's not biblical. But for those in, my, in the hearing of my voice today who may be um, more, more shy, more, more introverted, more quiet, um, and social, social settings may drain you, God can empower you to speak to an individual because what we have to say is so important. I look at our deacon for finance, Steve Kimmel. I guess if I, oh, I met him about 10 years ago. I guess even 15 years ago, he was not a public speaker. But now I've seen this man lead our church in the financial area. I've seen him teach a Sunday school class. He still has room to grow, right, Steve? We all do. And I, and I want us to say in this dying to sin and living to righteousness, it's not dying to sin and then those scars of sin, they're, they're going to shape me. God's making us a new creature. Those words are not just hyperbole to make us think of a flower blooming or something. It's God's really reshaping us. That's why I can't tell Jason that I'm always going to be a jerk to him. I don't know if you're an engineer or not or how you deal with engineers, but... God has shaped me by being a part of this body. And we're going to hear in a few minutes about the elder retreat and some of the things that we talk to each other about. And one of the things that we talk to each other about were affirmations and improvements that we, affirmations of what we see in each other's lives and then areas where we feel like God can still improve us. That was really important for us to, to hear. And I was uh, blessed and surprised by some of the things the other guys said to me, because they they're areas where God's working with me where I didn't did not even realize it. Um, there have been times in my life, in the last six or seven years, where men in this church have had to come up to me on a Sunday morning and say, "Dude, you got to chill. You know, it's not about the sound system. 
It's about the message. It's not about whether the chairs are set up properly. Love people. Love people more than projects. That's been told to me. I don't think it would have been appropriate. I think it would have been sinful for me to say, guys, this is how I am. This is how I'm gifted. I'm running projects. I'm making sure chairs are set up. I cared more about chairs than I did about people. And I have not arrived. I still want God to change me, to break my heart, to make, give me love for people, for all of you, for people not here yet. So join with me in that transformation of the gospel. Moving on, the cross is not just an offer. The cross actually secures and guarantees. If we look in the end of verse 24, by his wounds you have been healed. By his wounds you have been healed. It's not by his wounds you receive the offer of healing. Or by his wounds healing is possible. Instead, it's a past tense. You have been healed. In Greek, I'm sure it's some other sort of tense. But the cross creates new people. The cross transforms people, people who can follow the pattern of Christ's life. Spiritual healing from sin is effectual. So not only is Jesus our suffering example, and not only is Jesus our sacrificial Savior, but Jesus is also our strong shepherd, our last point. In Isaiah 53, verse 25, um, and also in verse 25 here in, in 1 Peter, says, you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is such comfort, comforting language. With the sacrifice and the substitute of Christ, God saved us and brought us back into the fold. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we know now the Lord has laid on him the punishment for our sin, the penalty for our sin. To become our shepherd, Jesus took on our sin, took on our penalty, the punishment for that. Jesus laid down his life in order to give us life. From our past condition of straying like sheep, wandering, to the present rest of being under the care, being in the fold, being returned to our shepherd, literally the guardian of our souls. The good shepherd gathers us unto himself. But we are not called to see suffering as merely inevitable with an air of fatalistic resignation, but instead of patient confidence. Suffering is our calling because we are God's people. Suffering will come because we are doing right, and it will be unjust. Suffering is a purifying flame to burn away the dross, the impurities of our sins, so that our faith might be tested and purified. I hope I've conveyed to you that I, I'm not saying any of this is easy. I'm not saying that, and, and you probably figured it out because I stayed so long on that point. And trusting all of it to God who judges righteously is one of the hardest things to do. It's one of the hardest truths that we can grapple with. But it's what God has called us to do because, number one, Christ suffered as our example. Christ suffered as our pattern. And number two, Christ suffered for us. 
His example is not theoretical. It's not abstract. It's not an ideal that um, we should live our lives toward that, but we all know we're never going to achieve that. Christ's suffering is instead our model and our salvation. It is the root of our motivation to endure suffering. Without Christ as our substitutionary salvation, this is all a vain exercise. But with the atoning work of Christ on the cross, we see God's purpose in saving us from the slavery of sin. We see God's purpose in giving us the ability to live to righteousness. And I call on us today, a simple call, to live in the truth of this passage, that we should follow the pattern set by our Savior, empowered by the saving knowledge, the transforming work, of the substitutionary sacrificial salvation that he achieved and he accomplished on the cross for us. We are going to turn to the table and Joseph is going to come up and give us direction in a moment. What an appropriate time, what a providential time to see this passage, to hear Isaiah 53. We... There's just so much here. I hope that you will look at these verses and maybe even flip through Isaiah 53 as we take the elements. And I pray that this will be a, um, a special time of remembering Christ's work and the substitutionary death on the cross. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we pray that this, this passage, which has a strong, strong truth, challenging call, but such a powerful, loving example of our Savior dying for us, taking on the penalty for our sin so that we might live. Oh, how often we, we live our lives blithely as if we are not purchased, as if we've forgotten that we were doomed, condemned, and now we live with no condemnation. We should live as people who had their life spared in a miraculous intervention in a traffic accident so that each day is a gift. Each day we should live as people who are bought. And even when we are wronged, even when we suffer unjustly, Father, we know that our lives are not our own, that we can trust You Grow that faith in us. Grow that trust. And allow our lives lived in submission to Your Son, our Lord and Savior, to glorify You, to draw people unto You that they might see that we live as people who have hope. Father, this is a difficult call, but we thank You for saving us to this call to suffer as our Savior did. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.